Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, man. I like the way that guy walks around owning the place. I like that quite a bit. Songs were special uh, to me today, so thank you, everybody. In fact, years ago, I won't tell you exactly how many years ago, in this sanctuary, on a June the 4th, Be Still My Soul was played by Dr. Rieger while uh, Phil Moore sang it, and I just sort of wept the whole time. So, great songs today. We are in the midst of a sermon series entitled Called Up. It is an epiphany sermon series. Epiphany. So these are the words that I would use to describe sort of the ethos, the feel of epiphany. One would be wow, one would be surprise. There is hope and there is newness in the season of epiphany. It's kicked off by the visit of the Magi. Who would have thunk that these astrologers somehow would have found their way to the Christ child? But that's just how big God is. That's how many languages God can speak. God offered up in that moment a newness that would not have been experienced otherwise. The first Sunday in Epiphany is Baptism of Christ Sunday. And and I would submit to you that there was a a new era launched in the baptism of Jesus. That's what Epiphany is. Something new, something better, hope. Now, some of us need to be separated from what was in order to embrace what is coming what is and what's coming, right? I mean, let's think this through. There, there are some of us who need to be separated from what was, all of the, the hurt and the regret that is entangled in what was, the wounds that are associated with what was. We have to be separated from that somehow, and I would submit to you that's work that only God can do in order to then loosen our grips and make our hands open for what it is that God has for us today, much less tomorrow. That's why there is an important line in every one of our baptismal liturgies. I, I, I like it when all of us, each of us pastors, get a chance to baptize. But for some reason, I'm especially moved when Lisa does it and she's baptizing a kid. Do you notice that there is this moment in the liturgy where she does something like this? She goes and she anoints them with oil. It may seem strange in a baptismal liturgy, but that's the way we've been doing it around here for decades. And here is what is said to this person who's now been anointed with oil in the sign of the cross This oil is meant for the healing, the healing of sin in your life, those sins that you have committed, but also those sins that have been committed against you. There is right there in the baptismal moment, 
this acknowledgement that we need to somehow be healed of what was, the bad thing that happened. Sometimes those wounds are self-inflicted, amen? (laughs) And sometimes they're not. We're absolutely innocent and still wounded. There needs to be a moment of healing, though, that allows for a new future. That's what epiphany is. A new future, a new hope. But today, I I am moved, and I have been all week, moved by this possibility, and I I wanted to ask you this question. Does anybody come into the sanctuary today dragging something in that continues to shape you, and perhaps even the people around you, a wound that you have suffered, a wound that you have self-inflicted? Does anybody in the room besides me need to be separated from what was so that God can prepare me for what will be? Yeah, I'm probably not alone. I'm glad you're here today. Bad things happen to people. Sometimes it's not the fault of the person to whom it happens. This has been a baseball-themed series, and I have immensely enjoyed it. <laughs> really enjoyed it. This is Lou Gehrig. Now, uh, Lou Gehrig was a phenomenal, perhaps the greatest first baseman of all time. Perhaps the greatest first baseman of all time. Just a a few uh, facts and figures surrounding Lou Gehrig. 17 seasons, all with the Yankees. Uh, Played 2,130 games in a row. That's how he earned the name Iron Horse. He was an all-star seven consecutive times. He won the Triple Crown, which means average home runs uh, and runs batted in. He won that once. He was the American League uh, Most Valuable Player twice. Won six world titles, had a career, career 340 batting average. He hit 493 home runs and had almost 2,000 runs batted in. Here's something I didn't know. I kind of knew all of that. In 1939, he died in 1938. In 1939, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame and was the first Major League player to have his uniform number retired by a team. The first one, number four. I'm telling you, there's plenty to remember where Lou Gehrig is concerned, the baseball player. But that's not really the reason that we remember a whole lot of Lou Gehrig. At least there's a whole lot more to the Lou Gehrig story. Lou Gehrig is a Yankee legend. I think without argument, he's the greatest first baseman to ever play the game. When Lou Gehrig first came up to the Yankees, Babe Ruth was the greatest star in the galaxy. And later in his career, Joe DiMaggio arrived. But he did not mind being in the shadows. If anything, he was uncomfortable in the limelight. And at the same time, when you look at his numbers, they're staggering, you know. They called Gehrig the Iron Horse because he played more consecutive games than any other player. He was there in the the lineup every day. He performed his job brilliantly, effectively. Gary hit these line drives and just chugged around the bases. He was the avatar for the whole Yankee tradition. 1938, Gary uh, showed up for spring training. He felt off. He noticed that he was squeezing the bat harder. He was getting these blisters. And as the season goes along, his numbers are off, and he finishes the 1938 season with what, for most human beings, would be a terrific year. But everybody can see in spring training of 1939, he's stumbling. Um, out in the field, and the reporters are all speculating about what's wrong with Gehrig. He pulls himself out of the lineup after 2,130 consecutive games, by far the longest streak ever in baseball at that point, and he goes to the Mayo Clinic. 
And there, the doctor instantly recognizes that Gehrig has ALS. ALS is a neurological disease, and it effectively shuts down the messages from the brain to the body, and the muscles start to melt away. For all of his prowess on the field, seems to me that Lou Gehrig is known more for the disease that bear his name. Bears his name, Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, the technical term, and I will butcher this, but here it comes amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. But even beyond that, I, I think we remember Lou Gehrig for another reason. Yes, he had the disease, but I don't know if you know this, but he actually made a speech one time. In fact, he made a speech during his last season as a ball player, his last season as a Yankee. And I think this might be what it is that sort of sticks in our minds as we think of a guy like Lou Gehrig. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. break. Today, Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Goes on to say this, I've been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. (laughs) Goes on to say, when you have a mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so that you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and show more courage than you ever dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I may have had a tough break, but I have an awful lot to live for. I don't know about you, but the baseball fan in me does remember that Lou Gehrig was a, a great player. But I remember probably a little more that he, that career ended because of this disease. But I think I remember even more than that, that he was the guy, though the bad thing had happened to him, he was a guy who was able to somehow say, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. He was obviously delusional. Like, how can a guy suffering a debilitating disease understand himself as the luckiest man on earth, because the disease, you all, would actually take his life. How how in the world can a guy like Luke, now was he a Christian? I don't know. I'm not going to try to sell you on the fact that he was a Christian. He might have been. There's a picture of him as a a child in in a baptismal robe in a Lutheran church. He married a Catholic girl, which I highly recommend. He's buried in an Episcopal cemetery. I mean, he might have been, but we don't have a whole lot of that. We know that he and Babe Ruth lived a very different life. Babe was kind of a carouser. By the way, when they did this movie, The Pride of the Yankees, in 1942, Babe Ruth was actually played by Babe Ruth. It's very interesting to watch Babe play Babe in in that movie. But they even showed in the movie, these were two very dramatically different people. Somehow Lou Gehrig was able to experience and even absorb this terrible thing that happened and somehow he was able to not be defined by it. Have you ever had a wound, self-inflicted or otherwise? Maybe we can even call it a sin. A sin 
you committed or a sin committed against you that's not yet been forgiven one way or another, that then becomes such a problem that it shapes you. It shapes your posture for perhaps all of eternity. And then beyond that, it may even have a negative shape on the people around you. Here's where I see it. I have seen some of the worst wounds ever administered, administered by one family member to another. Have you ever seen it? And then have you noticed that those wounds somehow last a long time? So long that it's not just the person who delivered it and not just the person who suffered it that are shaped forever. It's all the people who know the story or at least think they know the story who have taken sides. Sometimes the past shapes the present, certainly can shape the future. Do you, do you see that? What I want you to see in Lou Gehrig and later in Joseph is that it doesn't have to be that way. Awful things are going to happen. I think that's a given. <laughs> we have been pretty careful around here to say good faith may still experience hard days. Sometimes we make the terrible decisions and do terrible things and we're scarred by it. Sometimes the terrible things happen to us through no fault of our own and we're still scarred by it. You can be a faithful person and still have a bad day. Does everybody know that? The question for the Christian is this. Does God get to do something with that past that only God can do? Does God get to determine the shape of your today and your tomorrow? We're talking about Joseph. You probably know this, but just sort of bear with me. There might be somebody in the room for whom this is a new story. There was a guy by the name of Jacob who had lots of different sons. One of those sons was named Joseph. Joseph understood himself as the favorite of all of the sons, which was super annoying to the other brothers. As a matter of fact, what made it worse was Jacob, sometimes called Israel, same Israel that would become, this family would become the nation. Sometimes Jacob slash Israel would just say right out loud, oh, Joseph, I like you better than the rest of them. <laughs> and the rest of them just sort of chafe underneath it. So imagine how they felt when Jacob when Joseph had a dream, and he goes running to his brother and said, you guys, I had this dream, and in my dream, you all bowed down to me. Isn't that awesome? Not awesome, Joseph. <laughs> had another dream. Went to his dad and said, hey, dad, I had another dream, and you and all the brothers bowed down to me. And, and old man Israel said to him, yeah, let's keep that one to ourselves. Let's don't, let's don't talk about that one. The brothers were so angry, they decided to kill him. Now, the oldest brother, the wisest brother, who recognized how hard that would be on dad, said, let's, 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 don't, let's don't kill him. Let's just drop him in a hole and leave him. And then they sold him into slavery. Sold him into slavery. Ended up somehow in Egypt in the home of a guy by the name of Potiphar. And as you know, chapter 39, Joseph, a servant in this home, was framed by Potiphar's wife, she tried to claim that he assaulted her, and sure enough, Joseph is now sent to jail. Bad things happened to him, sold into slavery, thrown into jail. While in jail, he interprets the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker. He kind of gains this reputation for being an interpreter of dreams, so much so that Pharaoh hears about it, because Pharaoh's having dreams now, troubling dreams. So he sends for Joseph, and Joseph says, well, here's the deal. There's drought coming. And Pharaoh, you're going to have to make some decisions 
You're going to have to make some decisions and prepare for the drought that's coming. Well, he was right. And because he was right, Joseph ascends to the number two spot in all of this powerful kingdom of Egypt. The drought hits because bad things happen, y'all. Drought hits. And Joseph's brothers, who thought he was dead, at least gone, far away, at least thought they would never see him again, they are suffering and they're starving, and so they come to Egypt for help. Now, they come without the youngest of the brothers, Benjamin. They come without the youngest because the old man couldn't stand to lose another son. So they go looking for help, and they go to Joseph, though they can't recognize him. By the way, Scripture tells us that Joseph kind of in disguise, painted up like an Egyptian, didn't even use their own language. He would only speak to them through an interpreter so as to preserve the disguise. But Joseph recognizes them. These are the people who did the thing, who did the terrible thing. Now, if this were a Western movie, we are primed for vengeance, right? If this this were a cop show somehow, right? If this were one of our our shows that we watch on a regular basis, there's something about taking and getting revenge that is kind of satisfying, right? Where our humanity is concerned. I think we're so schooled by those different kinds of entertainments and those different voices that we we read this story, and if we haven't read it before, we get to this point point, we go, oh, this is where Joseph gets his. This is where Joseph wipes them all out. This is where Joseph finally evens the score. As the story goes, Joseph maintains the charade for a long time. Maintains the charade and is doing all that he can to see the youngest brother and to see his whole family again, but he's still maintaining the disguise. So he even actually plants some stolen evidence in the bag of the youngest brother when he finally sees him. Plant some evidence so as to make it look like that somehow the younger brother had stolen, stolen from the palace, this drinking cup, just to somehow make sure that he kept them under his thumb and to make sure he got to see them all again. So the police, the Egyptian police, and they go, and it's, remember, it's planted evidence. They go and arrest the brothers. Says, hey, what are you doing stealing the, the kings, stealing Joseph's personal wine? It's got his name on it right there. It says Joseph. He drinks wine out of this thing. What are you doing stealing this? And they said, oh, no, 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 we 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 didn't do that. And Joseph says, again, still in disguise, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep this younger brother here with me. You go get his dad and come back. And then there's this speech by a guy by the name of Judah at the end of chapter 44 saying, I can't do that. I I can't leave this younger brother here. Now he is our dad's favorite son in the absence of Joseph. I can't leave him here because he'll die. He'll die if, I, if we leave us, this younger brother here and we go back to our father and we say, hey, looks like Benjamin's in trouble. Looks like he shoplifted while at the palace. Jacob, will, Israel will just die. So we can't do it. That's when we pick up our verses, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it 
And the household of Pharaoh himself heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence because they also had seen all those old westerns. Right? So sometimes it's the bad thing that happens to you, and sometimes it's you who's done the bad thing, and you can kind of see the writing on the wall, I'm about to get mine. That's another way in which the past has a hold on the present and the future. But watch what is apparently possible. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. In my head, they sort of inched closer. And he said, now speaking their language, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Fascinating language. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This is huge. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler of over all the land of Egypt. You all. Now we have, have some more disgusting to do here. But I just want to say this, and I just want you to hear it. I'm going to let it ring for a minute. You all, look, look what God can do. With the bad thing that has happened in the past, some of the people in this room have done the bad thing. Look what God can do with the bad thing that some people have done in the past. But also... Look what God can do with the bad thing that was done to you. Because there are victims in the room here as well, right? Joseph was a victim. He was a victim. Yes, he had annoying dreams. He was still a victim, though. Look what God can do. Because I have known some folks who just can't move on. Whether they're perpetrators or victims, there are some people who remain locked in shackled by the past. Walter Brueggemann says this, the guilt of the brothers, the grief of the father, and the revenge of Joseph are all used as means for this disclosure of the hidden call of God. But none of that matters now. For the whole family is now brought to a new moment. Now hang on, John. So are we to believe that God caused all of this to happen? Did God cause all these ugly things to happen? Did God cause slavery? Did God cause the planes to fly into the buildings? Did, did God cause the Holocaust? Does God just cause suffering so that God can play the hero and come out looking like the good guy at the very end? Friends, that is not what we believe. The fact that God can make good use of terrible decisions does not justify those terrible decisions in all God's people said. But here's what we believe. Again, another Brueggemann quote. Oops. In Joseph's self-disclosure in verses 5 through 8, 
we are at the center of a great faith affirmation. Neither the freedom of the creature nor the gracious sovereignty of God is canceled. They are not in conflict, nor are they to be equated. This is how smart and big and patient and perseverance-oriented God is. They are not in conflict, nor are they to be equated. God's will makes use of all human action, but is domesticated or limited by no human choice. Here's what I'm saying. And this is, I hope you feel this as good news that perhaps can set you free from something that happened yesterday because God has a big tomorrow for you. Here's the thing, here's what I'm saying. No, God did not cause all of those ugly things to happen. No, God did not cause somehow you to do all those ugly things, but God is just big enough to use it all. This is how I understand God to be a really good parent. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but parents actually do not really have the capacity to control everything that their kids do and think. Amen. But I have seen some parents take some really bad decisions and still demonstrate the capacity to weave those bad decisions back into a grander, better, greater story. Friends, Heavenly Father is an important term for me. What God has shown the capacity to do is this. Did God throw Joseph into that pit? Nope. Did God cause Potiphar's wife to do what Potiphar's wife did? Nope. Did God cause all of this heartache? No, but God was a companion in all of that heartache. And maybe, most importantly, God knows how to use all of that heartache to open the door to the future. What if you were to believe that you don't have to be determined by the bad thing that happened, the bad thing that you did or the bad thing that was done to you? What if I were to tell you that you do not have to be determined by the bad thing that happened? Friends, you don't have to be determined by the bad thing that happened. doesn't mean there aren't still ramifications. If, if it means a prison sentence, it may still mean a prison sentence. If it's a disease that will someday take you, it may still mean that there's a disease that will someday take you. But the disease, the crime, and the sentence don't have to have the final say as to what it is that we think or that we see or what God sees when God looks at you. Forgiveness, the very term in the original language, means this, that one is let out of a cell. Forgiveness is a word picture that says, I will no longer hold the other into the cell, perhaps a cell that he or she created. I will no longer hold them in the cell of what they have done. Interesting passage here. So Joseph says, hurry up, go get my dad. You guys all move here, I'm I'm going to take care of you. And according to scripture, not only do Joseph and his inner circle think this is a great thing, even Pharaoh is perked up and he's paying attention and he says the same thing, this is a great thing, go get all of them and come back here, leave all your stuff there, you'll have everything that you want and more here in Egypt, the best that we have to offer, you have. In other words, even Pharaoh is caught up in the possibility that we could be separated from the bad thing that happened. 
And so they go, and they get Jacob. They go, and they, they bring him back. They're trying to tell him the story. <laughs> According to Scripture, there comes a point at which, as they're trying to tell him the story, he's heard the most important part, and the most important part is, no, your son is not dead. Verse 28, Israel says, enough! <laughs> My son Joseph is still alive. I got to go before I die. I got to go. And a new future opens up. A new future opened by God and enjoyed by those who relinquished past wounds. Now, hear these verses from Luke chapter 6. Hear these familiar words from Luke as an invitation to God's new future now available to those who reckon with the past and are liberated from vengeance, scorekeeping, judgment. Luke 6.36, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. What, what if that's not so much a promise of prosperity, but the possibility of a new way of life if somehow we were to allow God to deal, finally to deal with past wounds, self-inflicted or not? Yes, Lou Gehrig died. But I would submit that there is still some evidence there that God did a new thing in the midst of it. Because there's always been something about Lou Gehrig's posture in that moment. And in so many ways, I would submit that Gehrig's influence continues to inspire hope and change. I mean, just within the last few weeks, there has been breakthrough after breakthrough. It used to be that the treatment for ALS was only able to slow down what was happening to you, the inevitability of what was happening to you, within the last few weeks, three different places said, you know, maybe we can reverse. If we catch it soon enough, maybe we can reverse. I can't help but think that some of this energy was supplied by the posture of a Lou Gehrig, who reckoned with what happened to him but didn't let it determine how he was going to face the rest of his life. 2014, do you remember the ice bucket challenge? Remember that? Well, I'm going to play some of the weirdest ones for you, famous people. But let me say this. They raised $100 million in the 30-day period and $115 million over the summer of 2014 doing this stupid ice bucket thing, which I did too. Honestly, I don't know how this place is going to be for sound, but it'll probably... Hey man, we're just setting up. We haven't even started, did you? Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. Ice, ice, baby. I'm here to join the people bringing attention to Lou Gehrig's disease by taking the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Notice, lots of ice. Don't cheese out. Now, it's in order to raise awareness for ALS, which is a form of motor neuron disease, which has a devastating effect on people's lives. It's all part of a great cause, and uh, everyone should get involved. With it. That's rather cold. It's a little bit refreshing, actually. I hereby accept your ALS ice bucket challenge. Is that status? Oh, <laughs> Oh, 
is refreshing. California's in a, been in a drought, so I improvised. <laughs> Cookie! Now this is 70s ice, so it's colder than normal ice. It's been icing for a long time. It's been time. icing since the 70s. Yes. Do the thing. Do the thing. If I swear, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mom. Just do the thing. It just strikes me how many people got involved. Here's a difficult question. It's maybe a little bit more personal than you were expecting coming here, and I'm sorry. What, what might it look like in your entire household if you could reckon with the past? I mean, might there be generational change if, if you and I figured out how to allow God to help us reckon with the past? If we could really lean into this concept, this, this beautiful concept of forgiveness, maybe we're the ones who need to forgive ourselves. Maybe we need to forgive somebody else and let him or her out of that cage. The cell <laughs> that he or she constructed, the cell that causes you to think only one way about that other who did the thing so long ago. Might there be change, yes, in you, but might there even be change beyond you if we were to do the hard work of allowing God to help us reckon with the past? We have a lot of different ways we come to the table, but I, I want you to understand this as you come today, if you come today. Understand that here each week we remember and we even rehearse this unbelievable source and resource of forgiveness. This isn't just bread and cup. We call it broken body. Guess who broke it? We did. We call it shed blood. Guess, guess who shed that blood? We did. So there's a sense in which when we eat and drink, we, we eat and drink in judgment of ourselves and our, our, our being similar to those who actually carried all of this ugliness out. But we also are eating and drinking this source and resource for forgiveness. And maybe, maybe if we understand ourselves to a deeper and deeper extent to be forgiven, maybe then that unlocks our capacity to forgive. So I want to invite you to this table where each week we learn how to forgive and reckon with the past and open ourselves to a new future. So if you're helping us today, would you please go ahead and come down front. Heavenly Father, in these moments now, would you bless these elements, bread and cup. And would you again today, in these tangible elements of bread and cup, remind us of what it is that we do here today. Remind us that we are here aligning ourselves with those who did the terrible thing. But we are also aligning ourselves with those who have received forgiveness. Divine, gracious forgiveness that we could never have earned. Remind us today as we eat and as we drink that we are remembering and therefore rehearsing all over again your gracious forgiveness that perhaps once we eat enough bread and drink just enough from this cup, 
forgiveness that doesn't have to stop with us. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and come down row by row. You'll be dismissed row by row by these folks who are in the aisles. If you are coming all the way down front, I want to invite you to come with hands cupped. With hands cupped. Because you receive this as grace. You can't snatch it. You can't buy it. Don't try to grab it. This will come to you as a gift. As you receive it, that person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't take and eat it just yet. Dip it into the cup. The person holding the cup will say, and this is my blood shed for you. And then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. God, what are you preparing me for? God, help me to reckon with all that has happened. Help me to reckon with all of my self-inflicted wounds, but also all those things that have been done to me, to us. Perhaps you would prefer not to come down front if you would rather take communion. We have these prepackaged elements, and these same people in these aisles can offer you a prepackaged element. As soon as you get it, go ahead and take it. I'm going to go through the liturgy. Go ahead and take it. It works just the same. Perhaps you would opt out today. That's fine, too. You're welcome and you're invited because all of us who recognize our need for grace are invited, and that would be all of us. But you are not compelled. You don't have to come down. But you are welcome. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, broken by you, broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. Later on, he took the cup and held it up before them, and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink it, including today, remember me. And now all across the sanctuary, if you would, as you are dismissed by Rose, go ahead and come down with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant to nourish and equip the people of God. Go ahead.
are still coming, I'm going to start this prayer of confession and then turn it over to Jason. Heavenly Father, we do confess that at times we have let the past complete with our wounds, complete with our sins. Sometimes we do have the awful tendency to allow those wounds, those sins, to have too much say, to have too much say as to who we're going to be and how we're going to do. Confess, God, that sometimes we underestimate the transformational power of your grace. We underestimate the capacity that we have in you to be separated from our mistakes as far as the east is from the west. Pray for your grace now. Even as we confess, we pray for your grace to recognize how it is that we've allowed the past to shape who we are today and shape our tomorrow. So, church, pray that prayer if you would. Let's just see what God brings to mind as you pray. for the resources that we might need to open ourselves up to God's new future. May the Almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit keep us in eternal life. to invite you to continue into this sweet moments of prayer that we want to give you the permission in these moments of intercessory prayer to pour your heart out to God in prayer that whatever you need the most from God that it's in these moments that God can receive the fullness of who you are and you can ask God whatever you need healing from hurts that you can ask God for an outcome of something in your life that you desperately need. But as I pray for a few folks in our fellowship, you can pray for yourself, for your loved ones, for whatever you you need from God. And so God, I pray on behalf of some of our people here in the sanctuary and watching online, That, God, that you would take all of the hurt and bring healing. Lord, would you bring light into darkness? Would you bring wholeness into our broken pieces? God, where we need you the most, we ask, God, that you would come and rescue us. God, we ask for healing from broken relationships. God, we ask that you would take care of us 
when we're having difficult days, God, we ask for your loving presence where we need you the most. And God, as a collective body, we pray for those who need you the most. God, together we pray for the one heart that's heavier than all of our hearts. God, we pray today for that person who needs you when they leave this place or when they turn off the live stream, that they know they've been touched by your spirit. And so, God, would you show up where we need you the most today and in the days to come? God, we ask for your continued help and healing in the life of our friend Rick Stahl. God, we ask that you would heal Scott Peterson. God, we ask you would continue to take care of James Shea and in the recovery for Cheryl Hall and Evelyn Slothauer, for the blessing of Karen Martin's life. God, that you would be with Glenn and Betty Fane. God, we ask that you would be with all who are continuing or still or even currently struggling with the effects of COVID-19. God, we pray that all who've experienced loss, some due to COVID-19, God, that your comfort, strength would come alongside, God, those in the midst of grief. God, we pray those, those who've experienced loss this week, some of our friends like Chris Yates, Matthew Larson, God, we ask that you would be with those as they rest with their loss. And God, I ask that you would pray with all who are brokenhearted. Jesus, uh, it's our prayer this morning for our pastor, Britt Bowlerjack, as she is on her sabbatical, her first Sunday on sabbatical. That God, as she is in California this week with rest and renewal, that you would bless her with your loving presence. And God, we as a church pray for her while she's away. God, we ask that you would be with Pastor Aaron as he will join her for a little bit, but not until after board meeting tonight. And God, we ask that you would bless our time together as a board. And God, we ask, even in these moments, that you would take care of our enemies, our opposites, our irritants. And that we would become a people who would resemble this prayer in our daily lives, the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. And church, would you pray it together with me? It should be on the screen in front of you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.